Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to recent studies, about half of us set New Year's resolutions. And 78, and I'm uh, reading another study, 90% of us fail to keep them. But there's something compelling in the idea of a new you in the new year. So, should we set New Year's resolutions? And if we do it, how do we keep them past, say, February? We're going to ask you what you do, what successes or failures you've had, advice you could pass on to us. And we'll be talking later in the program with Peter Kinderman, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. We'll also be talking with Lisa Williams, senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Their articles recently in theconversation.com are titled, respectively, Why You Won't Keep Your New Year's Resolution and Time for a Reset, How to Make Your New Year's Resolutions Work. We begin with Mark Griffiths, who's Director of International Gaming Research Unit and Professor of Behavioral Addiction at Nottingham Trent University in the United Kingdom. His article in theconversation.com is titled The Psychology of New Year's Resolutions. Professor Griffiths, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Tom. Uh, So... uh, you, uh, I think you're like a lot of us. You say in your article that uh, you have taken on some big challenges, and I think have been successful. Sorry, I've t- yeah. I mean, I, I mean, unfortunately, I was diagnosed with quite a serious health condition about a year and a half ago, which meant that I had to give up alcohol and caffeine, uh, as, along with things like spicy food and chocolate. Um, I mean, every year I've always said to myself, I'm going to eat more healthily do a little bit more exercise, you know, do all the things that people traditionally do uh, at New Year and say to themselves. But unfortunately, it was a big, you know, massive health, ch- you know, a medical change in my life that meant I had to do some of these things I've been promising to do myself for many years. And as I've cut alcohol out now for nearly a year and a half, lost about, I don't know, 10 kilograms just as a result of, of really cutting out um, alcohol and, and feel a lot better in myself. But of course, New Year is one of those times, I, why it should be always on New, New Year's day rather than any, any time during the year, it always seems to be a traditional time that people say that after the, the blitz over the holiday period where they've probably been drinking too much, eating too much, doing all the things you're not supposed to do, not getting enough exercise, it suddenly people say, right, for the next month or so I'm going to detox, I'm going to do everything, and obviously some people want to carry on that for, for the rest of the year. Uh, but I do think, as I'm a, I'm a professor in behavioral addiction, I know what it's like for people to have, if you like, bad habits that, you know, just become ingrained in our day-to-day lives. But they're very hard. Once you've been doing something for a number of years, they are actually very um, hard to kind of, you know, take out of your life and get back to doing something that is a little bit more restrictive, a little bit hard to do sometimes, particularly when those people around you may be eating junk food, maybe drinking. I know for you know, I know now with me not drinking alcohol, I do find it quite difficult difficult in social situations to watch everybody else getting really merry, getting quite tipsy and in some cases drunk and not being able to do it myself. You talk about something called false hope syndrome. Could you tell us about that? Well, I, I, I mean, false hope syndrome is just, you know, very briefly, you know, people just get totally unrealistic ideas about what they can do in very, very short um, time periods. 
you know, basically people have these, what I would call, unrealistic expectations about, you know, the, the amount of time that it takes to actually get this, this behaviour under control, how easy it's going to be, you know, what the consequences of actually changing your behaviour. You've got to remember, we are, you know, we as human beings, we're social animals, and we kind of do things and compare ourselves with those people around us. You know, and I've all, you know, one of the, the things I say to you, when you are trying to give up something, whether you want to give up smoking or cut down the alcohol or do more exercise, it's always easier if you've got other people around that you are doing the same thing now you know my parents i mean i've never smoked in my life and one of the reasons i've never smoked is because we've got a history of lung cancer in our family and heart disease my mother you know my dad died of heart disease purely from smoking my mum died of lung cancer from smoke they were both chain smokers but one thing that they could never do was try and cut down together when one of them was trying to cut down the other one wasn't and it was you know they'd soon get back into the, into their, their bad ways as it were so we know that if you have emotional support you know around you is that you're far more likely to be successful if people are doing the same things as you. And I say that the, the, this thing about the, the, the kind of false hope syndrome is that it's, I say it's really all about people being totally unrealistic about what they can do in a given time period. And again, you know, I look at some of my own friends. What they try and do is they try and say, right, I'm going to cut out everything. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to eat less junk food. I'm going to st- you know, stop smoking. I'm going to drink less. But doing all of those things at once, kind of going cold turkey on everything, is probably the, the hardest thing to do. You know, one of the things I, you know, I would say to people is to do things just one, you know, do one thing at a time. Get that under control and then introduce something else into your life. And it, it, say, it isn't just about New Year. Is that, you know, if you can go for the next two or three months and say to myself, instead of drinking a glass of wine or two every single day, I'm going to do it on every third day and treat myself and do that over three months. And once you've kind of got that into control and cut down drinking, then say to yourself, well, I'm going to cut down on junk food or I'm going to do a bit more exercise or do whatever you do, but do one thing at a time. You're going to be far more successful if you're concentrating on one thing at a time rather than trying to do four or five things all at once. Yeah, I think there's there's just something about that change of calendar, isn't there? We, we want to have a new us in the, in the new year to change everything. So you're saying one thing at a time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not to sound, I'm sure there are people out there listening who have got more than one, you know, one resolution, they may have two or three. But I think, you know, and some, you know, it all depends what those kinds of resolutions are. I mean, some of the, those things may not be anything to do with self-improvement. They may just be, you know, doing, you know, doing something else that they, they, they want to add into their life. You know, they might say, so I want to do, you know, read more, read more and spend less time on my PC or tablet or whatever. I mean, those, those kind of things which are probably easier to do than something like, as I say, cutting down an habitual habit that you've had for many, many, many years. And again, you know, I've spent the last, well, in fact, almost 30 years now studying what I call technological addictions. So these are, you know, man-machine interactions that are very, very excessive and lead to problematic behavior. And there's been a real rise, obviously, over the last five years or so in terms of, you know, mobile phone capabilities, you know, you people using tablets, laptops, etc., every, doing everything on the move. And I do think that people's New, Year, New Year's resolutions are now taking into account the, the more technological behaviours that people are engaged in. I think, you know, we've always had, you know, maybe over this last century, this idea of New Year that you start to live more healthily and, and try and do all those things. But I think the, the kind of behavioural excess and wanting to go back to, for instance, watching less television, reading more, learning more, putting yourself in educational courses, those, those are the kind of things that I know people want to do. And I think they are probably, to some extent, easier than doing things that we know are particularly addictive, particularly, you know, um, al- you know, with alcohol and nicotine and other things like that. 
Yeah, it seems like with advances in technology, their problems come along with it. I, I want to pause here and, and talk about that a little bit. Uh, is there something inherent in our interaction with technology that that, that can lead to uh, addictive behavior? Well, I mean, that, that, that's right. I think all human behavior is a, a kind of summary, well, a kind of summation of a person's biological or genetic predisposition, their, you know, their psychological makeup, so their personality traits, their attitudes, their beliefs, etc., plus the social environment they were brought up in and, you know, the attitudes of people around them as they were brought up, societal and moral values there. But there's also what we call situational and structural characteristics. I mean, I've spent three decades studying, uh, for instance, gambling. I mean, one thing I'll say about gambling is we know that if you are vulnerable or susceptible, there are certain types of gambling that tend to be more problematic. So things like slot machines tend to be far more problematic for, 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 for vulnerable or susceptible people than things like a bi-weekly national lottery. And one of the reasons for that is that the technology is such is that these, you know, things like slot machines have what we call a very high event frequency. It means that if you have the time, the money and resources, you can gamble again and again and again on a slot machine, but you can't do that on a bi-weekly national lottery unless you're some kind of bizarre person that loves just buying ticket after ticket after ticket at a shop for a lottery that only is drawn maybe once or twice a week. Now, what I'm saying there is that there are, if you like, the technological advance has meant that what that does is give people more rewards, more reinforcement, and addictions are really all about constant reinforcement and constant rewards. And that's what you get all the time with various kinds of, of technology is the, the rewards come thick and fast, whether you're waiting for a text to come in, whether somebody's just liked what you've just done on Twitter. It's very similar to what happens on things like a slot machine where the rewards come every few seconds. And even if it's not a real reward, is that you can sometimes create a reward in your head. So when we're playing a slot machine, for instance, and we're trying to match up three symbols in a line, you know, the first reel spins around, you might get, uh, you know, a cherry, second reel spins around, another cherry, third reel spins around, and the cherry's just above or just below the pay line, and that's what we call a near-miss experience, but from a psychological perspective, that's actually still as rewarding as if, as if you were actually winning. So, you know, the question I always get asked is, you know, why do people, people constantly gamble if they're constantly losing? And you've got to realize that people don't constantly lose, they constantly nearly win, and this is re re reinforcing, and we find this in everyday forms of technology, whether it's you're playing Angry Birds or, you know, on your mobile phone, or you're, you know, you know, you're on a social network with lots of other friends who are feeding into conversations and complimenting you. And the whole point about this is just the anticipation of something coming in can be just as rewarding as you know, the actual thing itself. So those, those kind of things, they've just become so habitual in our lives. And people use the word addiction all the time, and I get accused by a lot of people of watering down the concept of addiction because I've applied it to things like people being addicted to Twitter or people being addicted to a video game or people being addicted to a slot machine. But, you know, I have you know, very strict clinical criteria in terms of how I define addiction. And the good news is, is that most people, whether they're talking about their, their, you know, their Facebook use or their video game use or how much time they spend on tablets, is that it's really about habitual behavior. They're not really genuinely addicted to it at all. You know, and I, you know, I can think of my own children. I've got three screenagers. You know, I've got children aged 14, 16, and 19. They all spend a disproportionate amount of their everyday lives on, you know, on screen-based technologies. Now, the thing about that, of course, is, you know, when my daughter leaves a house without a mobile phone, you know, she's left it behind. She, you know, she always gets withdrawal-like symptoms, at least in the short term, because she, she, she feels, you know, it's what we call the fear of missing out, FOMO, F-O-M-O. 
Um, and, but it's not addiction. I mean, this is just habitual behavior. And I know, for instance, when we take our kids on holiday and there's no Wi-Fi access, they have no problems at all. But it's, you know, I, I'm a bit like that myself, is that when I, you know, if, I'm, if I haven't got Wi-Fi access, I'm absolutely fine. But if I'm on holiday and there happens to be an internet cafe or there is Wi-Fi in the particular place we're, we're in, I'm likely to log on to my emails, log on to Facebook, see what's, what's going on. But just because, the, if you like, the temptation it's there, it's an habitual behavior, but it's not addictive. You know, and I think the good news about, you know, you, you'll see reports in the papers every single day with saying, you know, more and more people addicted to, to technology. No, what we're really talking about is lots more people who are habitually using technology, but in fact, if you took that technology away from them, within two or three days, they'd get back into a particular cycle where they wouldn't necessarily need it uh, anymore. They're certainly not addicted to it, but of course, because it's become such an habitual habit that they do every single day, when it's just momentarily taken away, people do feel like they're they need it and they're addicted to those particular things if you just joined us we're talking about new year's resolutions we're also talking about addiction and uh, habitual behavior as well later in the program we're going to be talking um with a couple of other uh, psychological experts so talking with uh, peter kinderman professor of clinical psychology university of liverpool we'll be talking with lisa williams senior lecturer in the school of psychology at university of new south wales in australia and uh, i'd love to hear from you Get your experiences. Uh, do you set New Year's resolutions? How's that gone? Love to hear your successes uh, and or failures. Um, and I certainly have both more on the failure side. Um, we're, we're trying to get some tips on uh, how to set successful and be successful with our New Year's resolutions. And we have uh, with us uh, right now Mark Griffiths. Uh, who is director of the International Gaming Research Unit and professor of behavioral addiction at Nottingham Trent University in the United Kingdom. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at, uh, at gmail.com. Um, so, uh, Professor Griffiths, I want, I want to uh, continue this, uh, this train of thought on... Um, on um, Habitual behaviors, yeah, uh, and I've seen this in in young people, and I don't know. I, I, it just feels curmudgeonly of me to to sort of shake my fist at this, but uh, I'm on the campus of Utah State University here, and uh, I see students exiting class. So you'll you'll see you know hundred or so students come out. A very large percentage of them immediately have the smartphone out. Their head bent in that. Well, I'm, in that I'm familiar, sure that's you know? you're probably, I mean, I have the same thing here. <laughs> Maybe 99% of, uh, of you know, my own students, as soon as my lectures finish, they're on their phones. And my guess is lots of them are surreptitiously actually doing it while I'm lecturing as well, even though I'd, if I catch anybody with a mobile phone on, they have to leave, leave my lecture. I mean, it's the one thing I really abhor when I'm lecturing is that people are doing other things, you know, on screen based technologies while they're in. But of course, you know, we've got a lot of students now who do bring their laptops in and they're taking notes, and it's very hard to know where whether they're actually, actually listening to me or whether they're actually doing something else. But of course, you know, and I say, I say I've got three screen ages myself. I know how embedded these screen-based technologies are in, you know, in people's everyday lives now. You know, my kids will say that their whole social life and, in fact, some of their work study life is played out on their tablets and on their mobile phones. Uh, so, you know, and I, I've always kind of advocated that, uh, you know, the good things about those, those kind of technologies is that the earlier introduction that children and, you know, older, um, old, 
older children have with um, technology, acquainting them with that state-of-the-art technology means they've got no technophobia whatsoever. They're, you know, I, I love seeing my kids when they get something. They don't sit there reading the instructions. They just go into it straight away and learn by doing. Whereas I'm one of these old, kind of old school who'll sit down and read everything in the instruction before I even switch, uh, you know, a new tablet on or a new phone. Whereas kids nowadays, they've got none of this technophobia that I used to have when I was a, a kid. You know, I, I remember before my mother died, for instance, she would get her six-year-old niece to program the television, to get it to record, to do things, you know, because, you know, the, the kids of today, they have no fear about technology whatsoever, whereas, you know, older people that have not, you know, had lived or grown up in a world where the internet has been 24-7, there's a lot more fear. And again, my, my, all my own children, they've never known a world without mobile phones. They've never known a world without the internet. They've never known a world without interactive television. For me, as a, you know, I was, you know, I was somebody who grew up where there was only two channels on television. They were both in black and white. Even when they were on, the programs on were not something I particularly wanted to, to, to watch. But now, of course, my kids, they're bombarded with 150 channels to choose from if they want to, to do so. You know, invariably, they're not even doing that. They're looking at something on YouTube instead or looking at Instagram or whatever. But this is part and parcel of today, you know, today's society. I, I suppose what we don't know is what the longer-term effects are on people's, if you like, people's psyches and things like reaction times, etc. Because, you know, people expect everything to be instant at a touch of a button now. Uh, and again, I, you know, I, I, I tell my children that, you know, in my day when I was studying at school, I'd have to wait four weeks for, a, you know, a book to be sent from a library for me to read. Now kids just expect on the touch of a button they can find, you know, a, an article on something they directly want for their homework within a few seconds. It's a completely different world. You know, and I think some psychologists have said that, what, you know, one of, one of the things we don't know is what are the longitudinal effects of these, you know, screen-based technologies where everything is instant access. Are, you know, are people's memories going to get poorer? You know, are we going to find that, that you know, people can't retain information the way that we, we used to? We don't know the answer to these questions because the, these new technologies have really only come to the fore in the last decade. And, of course, the other, the other problem is even if we wanted to do this longitudinal research, it's so expensive to do that, of course, very few studies, you know, have the, have the funding to carry out that over many, many years. And you said that uh, you've encountered, I guess, or, or seen studies perhaps that uh, people are including these, uh, trying to get away or, or, or reduce these uh, technological interactions as part of their resolutions. I want to get back to resolutions. Um, it, one of the factors here that I've found in my life is it's just, it's just hard to change a habit. It's really hard. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, you know? You know, something that you've been doing day in, day out for 30 years, it's really incredibly hard to change. And one of the things I would always say is, is particularly if it's something like smoking or it's something like, you know, drinking alcohol, is that going cold turkey isn't necessarily the best way to do things. You should do it gradually over a period of time. You know, so, I mean, if you're somebody that you know, for instance, drinks every single day, that every evening you have one or two glasses of wine, you start by saying, right, Every third day, I'm not going to drink. You know, I'll drink two days, I'm a day off, two days, I'm a day off. Then, you know, next month, say, I'm going to drink every other day, and then say, well, now I'm going to have two days off, one day on, and do it very, very gradually. I mean, that's the, the easiest way to get out of a habit, because what you're, you're doing there is if you're doing something for a month or two that's slightly different, but not radically different, is that your body begins to habituate, your kind of psychology begins to habituate to these new routines. So doing things much slower over a longer time period, you're far more likely to be successful. And as I said to you earlier when we, we were talking, is to just do one thing at a time as well. If you've got more than one thing that you do habitually, 
individually that you're trying to cut down, it's always going to be you know, twice as hard if you're trying to change two behaviours at the same time. So again, I don't know what particular habits you're talking about, but again, as a psychologist, we know that doing things very gradually over a long period of time, you know, getting those habitual behaviours to have a little bit less or a little bit more if it's you know, eating more healthy food or whatever, is just doing those things very slowly. But of course... January is typically a time that people talk about uh, being in total detox. They say to themselves, even if they're not, not, not going to do it for the rest of the year, they say, for January, I'm going to eat nothing but healthy food. I'm going to exercise every day. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. But again, within two weeks, people find, them fall, find themselves falling back into the same routines, particularly because everyone else who they're interacting with are back doing th- those things as well. And again, it goes back to the point I was saying before. If you do things with somebody else, if you tell other people, you know, if you tell other people around you that I am going to try and cut down drinking, it's also sending a message out to the people around you don't tempt me by saying do you want to come down to the bar and have a drink or to come outside and have a have a cigarette with me or whatever it's it's you know that is where social support even if somebody else doesn't want to do exactly what you're doing by telling your friends if they are real friends they should help you and not put temptation in your way um to do that so i mean as i say all of these things are, are kind of very piecemeal uh, but as I say, you're right to say that if you've been doing something for years and years and years, it is really hard to change your behavior. I know it from myself. I say it took, you know, my partner was a, a, I wouldn't say she was a chain smoker, but when I met her, she was at least smoking 10 to 15 cigarettes a day. But it wasn't until she got pregnant that that was the impetus for her to stop smoking. And since that, you know, since, you know, we had that child, she's not gone back to smoking because that became an habitual part of her life for nine months. So that, you know, I, you know, I, I hope that people don't have to go through those really major things in your li- in your life to to stop you doing something. You know, as I say, I now have a, a, a quite a chronic esophageal condition, which means I cannot drink alcohol. I cannot drink uh, have drinks with caffeine in them. You know, but I was doing that for, habitually for years. But it's taken something really major in my life to stop that. But of course, if I you know if I was really very well and healthy, I'd be advocating what I've just been saying to you now is to do things gradually, slowly over longer time periods and be more realistic about it. Just have a couple minutes left with uh, Mark Griffiths. I want to get this email in, which has come to us from Glenn. Glenn says, I fully agree with Professor Griffiths uh, the, and the idea of FOMO, fear of missing out. I recently shut down my Facebook account. I've since dubbed it a quote-unquote waste book. I would find myself constantly checking my page, and when I didn't, I would become enthralled and uh, uh, when I did, rather, I'd become enthralled and spend 10 to 20 minutes of valuable time even at work. It was really interfering with my work and personal life. Not just resolutions, but any goal was hindering, was hindered by that and other electronic, uh, quote-unquote, entertainment devices. I shut off my cable as well, he says, exclamation point. Uh, in parentheses, my poor kids, exclamation point. Miss football and basketball, possibly a future Luddite, question mark. That's from uh, Glenn. So he he took some fairly decisive action there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think what's good there is that Glenn realized, you know, what he was missing out on his life by being so into checking. I mean, checking checking Facebook has almost become the equivalent of people having a scratch on their leg. You know, when you're, you know, it's almost like a boredom response. You know, my kids today 
is that, you know, they've got such a low boredom threshold. When I was a kid, you know, we didn't have all these things, so we had to kind of make our own entertainment. And one of the things that we would have is sometimes we'd literally have two hours where there was nothing to do. You know, you, I wouldn't be with anybody, you know, couldn't do anything. But now, of course, that just doesn't happen in today's society. So people, you know, constantly checking their phones for text messages, constantly checking Facebook to see if anyone's you know, messaged them to see what else is going on. It just becomes this little habit. And Glenn, you know, as I say, he's realized that it was impeding on his, his work in other, other hobbies, impeding on his children, etc. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the, the, I mean, with any addiction, the first step is to realize that you want to, you know, you want to actually get this habit out of your life. Now, the number of, for instance, the number of smokers I meet who are addicted to smoking and they say to, to me, they really want to cut down. It's a really bad habit. But of course, when it comes down to it and you say, right now, throw away your lighters, throw away every, you know, all those cigarettes is that they don't do that. You know, it's that, you know, there's something in the back of the mind thinking, well, you know, I might, you know, it, it's, come, you know, it's something that's important in my life when I'm stressed and when I've got, you know, feel tense, having a cigarette helps me calm down. People start to think to themselves, you know, do I, you know, could I really have my whole life without this thing that I've, I've, I've come to rely on? But again, it's, all, it's what I was saying before. It's about cutting down these things slowly, doing it in a, a, a manner that is, if you like, more psychologically easy, more physically easy, easy to do. But, you know, with any potentially addictive behavior, any, addic- you know, any genuine addictive behavior, it's hard to get out of your life. And, you know, there are it's obviously professional help out there as well. But I think the good news, particularly when it comes to things like alcohol, is people recognize they don't have necessarily have a problem with it with alcohol at all but they just like having a drink or two every single night i used to do it myself uh, but, you know but you know you, the thing about that is that they do cause other things in your life and i know for instance you know what in england what we call a beer gut you know people having a, a big stomach because they drink I mean, mine's completely gone now just within 18 months of, of cutting out um, alcohol you know and that makes me feel better about myself it raises my self-esteem yes i still would like a drink but i know i can't do it but i mean going back to glenn i mean that would you know for, for me that is the the best thing is when people realize themselves that they should you know stop or not necessarily stop but just cut down on this behavior is the first important step to actually being able to change your behavior the worst thing is when people say to you i'm going to leave you unless you stop smoking or when people for instance are in in law courts instead of being sent to prison and being given a custodial sentence they'll say you have to go to an addiction treatment center to sort out your drug problems or whatever but in those particular situations those people may not actually want to actually stop engaging in their addictive behavior they still might want to do it but and the fact that somebody else is telling to stop it is not a good reason for them um, to stop so as they're going back to Glenn he realized what he was missing out on in his life and is starting to do something about it you know and that's a very positive thing and I'm sure Glenn will have future success if he realized the benefits he can get from not logging on or not checking his Facebook as much as he used to uh, Professor Mark Griffiths, I, I know you have to get going here. We'll, we'll let you go. Mark Griffiths is Director of International Gaming Research Unit and Professor of Behavioral Addiction at Nottingham Trent University. Some great advice, and you can read more at theconversation.com. We'll have this link on our website. His recent article is called The Psychology of New Year's Resolutions. Professor Griffiths, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about New Year's resolutions. Following a break... We're going to be talking with Peter Kinderman, who's Professor of Clinical Psychology, University of Liverpool, an honorary consultant clinical psychologist at Mercy Healthcare NHS Trust. Uh, One of the things he says is perhaps we should not set New Year's resolutions. 
We perhaps should just set a goal when it seems appropriate. We'll talk about that later in the program. Lisa Williams, Senior Lecturer, School of Psychology at University of New South Wales in Australia, uh, it talks uh, about the uh, idea of a reset. She says it is healthy uh, to choose whatever reset point uh, that we want, including New Year's. And she gives us some tips on being successful in our New Year's resolutions. I'd love to hear from you. I, I loved hearing from Glenn. Thank you for uh, responding. Um, I've set a lot of New Year's resolutions and failed at most of them. A lot of them had to do with exercise <laughs> and uh, getting myself into shape. And I think the fact that it's just hard, very, very hard. Uh, you know, I'm done by about uh, about March. Um, in some years, I'm glad I made it that far. And so I've taken to not setting New Year's resolutions, but I feel kind of bad about that as well. In fact, Professor Griffith said at the end of his article, if you think this all uh, sounds like too much hard work and that it's not worth making resolutions to begin with, bear in mind that people who make New Year's resolutions are 10 times more likely to achieve their goals than those who don't. So that's, uh, that's helpful, encouraging for us. Let's take a break. We'll come back with more. You can join the conversation. Love to hear your story. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Did you know that when parents rave about a goal their child scored in the latest soccer game, the young athlete may be hearing more pressure than praise? When parents focus on scoring or the amount of time played on the field, the child may be hearing that mom or dad only cares about winning. Parental pressure and an overemphasis on winning in youth sports are the biggest reasons why children drop out. By the time they turn 13, 7 out of 10 young players quit participating. So what is the best thing a parent can say after watching their child's game? They can tell their young athlete, I love watching you play. Children also appreciate their parents when they hear some encouragement after a bad game. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. A lot of old housing projects are coming down in favor of Section 8 vouchers. It's one thing to live where you're told, though, it's another thing talking about having quality resource um, for tenants to, to start their search and really get a leg up on getting their, their families into neighborhoods of opportunity. I'm Kai Rizdahl. To get housing, you got to be able to find it. The story next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to recent studies, about half of us set New Year's resolutions, and 78% of us, according to one study, I read another study, said in excess of 90% of us failed to keep them. But there's something compelling in the idea of a new you in the new year. So should we set New Year's resolutions? And if we do, how do we keep them past, say, February? I'm asking you what you do, what successes or failures you've had. We'd uh, love to uh, love to have those stories and we did hear from uh, Glenn, who uh, said uh, that he's shut down his Facebook account. He was uh, spending too much time uh, ch excessively checking the account, in, in his opinion, anywhere. Anyway, he was he says, really interfering with his work and personal life. In addition, he, he shut off cable as well. Uh, so appreciate hearing, hearing that. He says, possibly a future Luddite. <laughs> That's what uh, Glenn said. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say so, Glenn. 
In fact, my wife and I, oh, a few years ago, shut off cable. We do get over the uh, air television, but we find that that certainly is sufficient. And I've uh, tried to cut back on technology. I got a new smartphone a few months ago, but I'm, I consciously try to get away from it every once in a while. Um, so whatever your New Year's resolution has been, or maybe you'd like to share your New Year's resolution, we'd like to hear about your successes or failures and uh, any tips you could give us. Coming up later in the program, we're going to be talking with Lisa Williams, who is Senior Lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Right now, we turn to Peter Kinderman, who is Professor of Clinical Psychology University of Liverpool and an honorary consultant clinical psychologist at Mercy Healthcare NHS uh, Trust. Here's that conversation. That, uh, Professor, matches up with what has become my attitude. I, I just don't want to set resolutions because I know I'm going to break them, you know, by February. But, yeah, and that's about it. So oftentimes when people have something that's uh, really difficult for them, like losing weight or stopping smoking or stopping drinking alcohol, and they've tried a few times, they figure that they need to do something really important in order to stick to this resolution this one time. So they go for the New Year's resolution to try to uh, make it happen. But of course, if it's important enough to want you to go to all of the trouble of making a New Year's resolution, it's probably something that's really difficult to do. So the chances are it's going to be a difficult thing uh, to live up to. And hyping it up for New Year, uh, maybe that's a bit more difficult. So I think... uh, uh, set your expectations low, um, and I guess expect that it won't be easy, uh, an easy journey. And part of that is you, as you've written, part of the problem is if we need an external uh, push or, or an excuse, maybe we aren't ready to do the hard work that it's going to take. Well, change. maybe that's right, and people rely just on willpower. And so part of the mythology of the New Year's resolution is that somehow, because it's New Year, it will give you extra capacity to resist temptation or whatever. But willpower alone isn't a terribly good uh, means of sticking to your resolution. So there are other things that we could do. I mean, one of the things that we could do is, is uh, just to, to deliberately set things up in our favor is when something seems like a good idea, that's probably the time to try it. So, you know, maybe we should stop smoking on the 27th of February or decide to go on a diet on, on the 13th of April. Sometime, you know, when we think it's right for us, maybe that's the time to do it. The other thing is that there are some things that we can do if you want to, to stick to promises. And perhaps the best of them is to make it public. People are much more likely to stick to resolutions or promises if they're public about it. That's kind of what marriage is about. So if you <laughs> let people know what you're trying to do, and if you do it as a group, then maybe maybe that's a little bit more likely to work. I guess I'd advise doing things when the time is right, not relying on willpower or the mythology of New Year's resolutions alone, and doing things with friends and doing things publicly. That's the best way to, to stick to your resolutions. Yeah, you've, you've hit a nerve there. I, I As I think about it, <clears throat> the goals I really, really want to keep, I do tell my wife about. The, the, if I keep it private, <laughs> I want it to, uh, you know, I don't want it to be a public failure. So that's, that's probably yeah. good advice. And, uh, I mean, there are lots of ways in which people can do it. I'm, I'm not necessarily a big fan of people joining groups. They tend to be a little bit commercial, and people are trying to make money out of uh, resolutions and smoking and, and drinking and so forth. But I think the idea of, for instance, forming up with a group of friends and going for a run or letting people know 
I mean, I, I'm being English, of course, I don't really approve of people taking photographs of their meals, but the idea of using social media just so that you and a group of friends can, can stick together on, for instance, you know, things like dry January. I don't know if that's a tradition in, in America, but certainly in the UK, some of the public health figures have said, you know, try to, try to go without alcohol for January. And then you sign up to it and you, you agree to it and you stick it on social media so you and your friends know that you're doing it as a group. Expect failure, so expect to, to lapse. If you're going on a diet, expect to have a day when you get a takeout and, and your diets are blown a little bit. But just bounce back, stick to it, apologize for, for stepping off the rails, and generally stick to the plan without expecting it to be perfect. But like I say, if you do it as a group of friends, deciding to cut down on your alcohol, deciding to eat healthier, deciding to go to the gym, if you do it as a group and if people know what it is that you're planning, yeah, you're more likely to succeed. But parenthetically, I'd, I've never understood that uh, that trend either, taking photograph of your meal, but it, it seems to have exploded. On the, on the <laughs> yeah, my point is that, that I, people kind of share on social media what they're up to in terms of their diet. So I guess I wasn't suggesting that you take a photograph so much as if people know that you've uh, got on a health kick, when they, when they meet up with you, they can ask how the diet's going, and it acts as a bit of a reminder. It keeps you in the social loop, I guess. Yes, yes, reach out and involve people. Uh, so yeah. as you point out in, the, in your article, um, there are three things a lot of us do, and I... I think I've even heard experts tell us this is a good idea. So you rely on willpower, and that, that's probably not a good mm -hmm. idea. You fantasize, a lot of us fantasize what it will be like when we lose weight or whatever it is. And we also envision failure. We, we sort of envision, I don't know, punishment or, or, or remaining mm -hmm. obese or whatever it is. You're saying yeah. that you're setting yourself up for failure if you do those three things? Yeah. One of the things that people do is that there's a certain sense, I, I can't say it on the radio, but uh, there's a certain phrase that people use when they make a mistake when it comes to their, their resolutions. They break their resolutions and then they say, ah, well, now, yeah, given that, then they use the phrase and then they decide to, to, that they've blown it and they have to leave their resolutions behind. I think one of the things we have to do is accept failure, accept that for instance, especially the things that matter. So getting fit, losing weight, stopping drinking alcohol, stopping smoking. These are things that are hard work. They're difficult to do. And the chances that you could just wake up one morning, set your willpower on stun, and then <laughs> your, your resolution is going to happen because you put in the will to make it happen. That's, that's psychologically unreasonable. We'd expect things to go up and down a little bit we'd expect success to come slowly and a bit painfully we'd expect to have days when we when it doesn't work so much so if you're trying to lose weight you'd expect a day when you just decide to have a takeout and have a pizza and things go wrong you'd expect to slip a little bit what you need to make sure is that over the weekly average or over the month you're cutting down on the things that are unhealthy so people are more likely to be successful if they set achievable goals Break them, if you break those goals down into smaller steps, um, if you tell other people about your plans, and if you accept that a few mistakes are going to happen along the way, you kind of roll with the punches and make sure that the general direction of travel that you're going is more or less in the right direction, rather than saying, as of tomorrow morning, my life's going to be perfect. I won't touch another cigarette. I'll never have another drink, and I'm going to eat only muesli for the rest of my life. It's not going to happen, and you shouldn't set yourself up to fail. 
by the way, I, <clears throat> I, I'm <laughs> I'm now fantasizing on setting my willpower to stun. That's a, that's a nice image. <laughs> uh, but you're saying that wouldn't work anyway. Um, so, would you suggest we stay away from New Year's resolutions? We did set resolutions and goals when it occurs to us or when we're ready. Well, nobody's nobody's done a randomized controlled trial of that, but the the success rate of New Year's resolutions is so low that yeah, I think it's a good idea. I mean, basically, I I, I would advise that if you think it's a good idea to make a small change in your lifestyle, then probably today's the right time to make that change. Saying, yeah, I'm going to go on a diet on the first of January, but between now and then, I'll eat as much fat as I can. That doesn't strike me as likely to be successful. What's more likely to be successful is to say, yeah, you're walking past a baker's shop and you think, shall I have a donut? And you think, no, on second thoughts, I probably won't today. And you pass on. That's more likely to, to lead to a successful attitude towards the, the things that we tend to make resolutions about. So, yeah, I think the, the, the 6th of January is a, is a very good day to make a, a resolution. Why oh, not? Well, good. 6th yeah, of that's... January, 6th of February. Yeah. But if, you, if you want to change your life for the better, Choose one small thing that you're going to improve and do it today. So I wonder, just to the, here at the end of the conversation, just to, to summarize, you've, you've told us, um, uh, you know, you just told us to uh, maybe not New Year's Day, but 6th of January is good if, if that occurs to you and you're, you're ready. Uh, involve other people. Uh, forgive yourself and know that there's going to be failure as a part of it and keep going. There, any other tips you give us to, to actually keep our goals? Um, well, I think that uh, just regard these things as, as um, lifestyle plans that require sort of constant monitoring and resetting rather than a single action that will dramatically change, change your life. So you can make lots of little changes. And making lots of little changes, each of which are achievable, is more likely in the long run to lead to a better quality of life than to make huge changes at, at, at one particular moment. So I think it's break it down into achievable goals Make, make realistic plans and uh, set that plan in, in motion when the time's right. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, uh, Professor Peter Kinderman, who's Professor of Clinical Psychology um, at uh, Liverpool, at University of Liverpool. Uh, we appreciate you very much giving us some advice Thank here. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Peter Kinneman is also honorary consultant uh, clinical psychologist at Mersey Healthcare NHS Trust in the UK. He's author of numerous uh, research papers. Latest book is A Prescription for Psychiatry, Why We Need a Whole New Approach to Mental Health and uh, Well-Being. And uh, coming up following a break, one last segment on this. New Year's resolutions and uh, uh, should we do it? And if we, uh, if we launch in, how to do it better, how to be successful. We'll be talking with Lisa Williams, senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Uh, following the break. As 2016 gets underway, presidential politicking goes into full swing. Living on Earth will be with you throughout the campaign tracking candidates. So far, all the Democrats call for action on the climate, while the only Republican to embrace cap-and-trade has dropped out of the race. I'm Steve Kerwood. Be sure to join me next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to recent studies, about half of us set New Year's resolutions. And anywhere between 78 and uh, an excess of 90% of reading different studies fail to keep them. But there is something compelling in the idea of a new you in the new year. 
So should we set New Year's resolutions? And if we do, how do we keep them past, say, February? That's our topic for today. And I'd love to hear your experiences, whether it's a failure or a success in setting New Year's resolutions or a goal at any other time of year, as Professor Kinderman said, we perhaps should focus on. Uh, and you can respond uh, with your experience at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Perhaps you have a tip that's been successful for you. We'd love to hear that. Upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll turn next to our uh, last segment here, Elisa Williams. Uh, her article uh, in theconversation.com is titled, Time for a Reset, How to Make Your New Year's Resolutions Work. We turn next to uh, Lisa Williams, Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales in uh, Australia, in, I believe, the Sydney area, right? That is right. Okay. We want to talk about New Year's resolutions, and Lisa Williams' recent article in theconversation.com is titled, Time for a Reset, How to Make Your New Year's Resolutions Work. So it sounds like you're you're not one of those people who suggest we don't make New Year's resolutions. We... You sound hopeful that we can make it work. I am hopeful. I think that uh, New Year's can provide an opportunity where people can make goals to improve themselves in whatever way they see fit and actually uh, put practices into place so that, that those goals are successful. So it's, it, it's not all doom and gloom from my perspective. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get some tips then. Um, you talk about the fresh start effect. Tell me about the fresh start effect. So recently, uh, psychologists have uncovered what they're calling the fresh start effect. The idea is that certain landmarks in time, uh, like New Year's Day or a birthday, represent a psychological time point where we can separate ourselves from our understanding of who we were and break that into an outlook for the future. So if you take the instance of New Year's resolutions, what New Year's Day affords us is the ability to leave behind our maybe unsuccessful efforts at improving ourselves in the prior year and instead set goals for the next year. So um, would this work for a new month or new week or you know, can I get up tomorrow and uh, will this work for me? Yeah, so one of the really intriguing bits of this research is that the fresh start effect isn't just limited to New Year's, uh, that we see a similar peak in goal-related activity at the beginning of each month or even the beginning of each week. And this actually ties into one of the uh, intriguing ways that you can use this psychological effect to your benefit to help continue to meet your New Year's resolutions. So February 1st, or even this coming Monday, provides another opportunity to, to uh, take a hold of the fresh start, so to speak, to reset a goal to maybe leave behind uh, some bumpy paths to the start and uh, renew those goals. Now, if we're starting more often, uh, isn't there a risk we fail more often? So I guess, you know, <laughs> it, I don't know. I, I think that that's true. I, I think that, um, look, it, any goal has the potential to not be met, and uh, we need to be realistic about the goals we set. So uh, a lot of common advice is to, to set a goal that is challenging but can be reached. One of the intriguing bits of research that I came across uh, suggests that 
Um, contrary to really popular opinion on this matter, which is to set a very specific goal, uh, instead, what this research suggests is that we should set a range of a goal. So uh, weight loss is an easy example to put this into concrete terms. So rather than saying I'm going to lose uh, 10 pounds by a particular date, uh, this research suggests that you're better off setting a range. So maybe I'm going to lose between 8 and 12 pounds by a particular date. Now, what that range does is it allows people the uh, flexibility to have bumps along the road, uh, which always arise, uh, but also that upper end of the range uh, serves as a, as a high-end challenge. What the research suggests is that when people set a range goal, they're likely to meet it, and when they meet it, they're actually more satisfied with their goal than if they had set a specific goal. So some really compelling evidence that the, the type of New Year's resolutions that we set and how we set them can uh, contribute to their likely success and how good we feel when we do reach them. Interesting, that, because what I've heard on goals, you know, up to, up to now is you, you need to be specific. But I guess a range is specific. It's just it's a range. Certainly. Certainly, yeah, it's specific in a specific way. So certainly I'm not advocating saying uh, in, in 2016 I'm going to be healthier because, <laughs> of course, right. healthier can mean a number of different things. So I certainly adv would advocate specificity in goal setting, but also not so specific and rigid that if, um, if there is any particular reason why that goal can't be met on a given day or in a particular week, that the entire resolution feels as if it hasn't been met. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, to business school. I had a professor. We were supposed to split into teams and do projects, and we we're supposed to have very specific goals. And he said, "I don't want you to come come to me and tell me you're you're going to raise awareness." And I, <laughs> I thought, well, that's what I that's what I, that's what I do in my profession. I, you know, in, in public radio, we raise awareness, but uh, he didn't want to raise awareness. He wanted a specific goal. So I guess you're telling me right. something of the Maybe same. Maybe raise awareness via specific action. Via specific action. That's right. Uh, another piece of advice I noticed you you have here: um, involve others. Don't go it alone. Certainly. So this really takes the power of, of my background as a social psychologist, highlighting the role of social relationships in all aspects of our lives. In, in particular, when we think about New Year's resolutions, um, my advice would be to find someone who, at the very least, you tell your New Year's resolution to. So there's a lot of research suggesting that publicly committing to a goal uh, makes you more accountable for that goal. And we are more likely to follow through on goals that we feel accountable for. So if you tell no one about your New Year's resolution, you can imagine it's a lot more easy to wiggle around, wiggle out of getting up at 5 a.m. for that run or whatever. Um, but the other thing about getting social support is if, if you can find someone to actually commit to the same resolution as you, uh, you can do the activities that are needed to meet that resolution, whether it's fitness related or health related or work related. Uh, what research shows is that when you sign up for a goal with a friend, you are more likely to meet that goal and once again continue to meet success in that goal over time. So really what we should be able to do is to take our social networks and use them to our benefit to better ourselves in whatever domain that may be. So I guess we are, we are built to be social, aren't we? And uh, involving others. I, I in would this. definitely say that, yes. Yeah. 
So involving others would, you're saying, will help us to, to change. Sure. So we know um, even even personal goals that require behavior change of, of our own volition. Of course, if, if our commitment is to exercise more, it is literally ourselves that need to go out and do it. However, if your commitment can be to exercise more, but that's with somebody else, um, one thing is you're less likely to... Uh, to fail to do the activity because someone's waiting for you, of course, um, but also that you enjoy it. And um, from my perspective, there's an added benefit there that sharing activities with someone bolsters that relationship. And then beyond simply meeting your new year's resolution, you have the added bonus of a strengthened social relationship with a peer. So to me, adding a social commitment aspect to your new year's resolutions is a win-win. So uh, some good advice. Uh, anything you'd like to add as we set our New Year's resolutions or, or having set them, you know, go, go about putting them into our lives? I would say um, set them realistically uh, with a range, as I said, uh, and also don't don't be so hard on on yourselves about if if those goals aren't met over time. As I said, each new week, each new month provides an opportunity. It's not just about New Year's, right? We can better ourselves any time of year. Uh, and it's, it's simply important to be mindful about those resolutions and stick to them and, and use what we know from psychology about those strategies that can lead us to success. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Lisa Williams, senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, thank you to everyone who uh, participated in the program uh, today. And good luck to all of us with our New Year's resolutions or, or perhaps with our, just with our goals. Um, tomorrow, I hope you'll join me, we'll be, uh, I'll be talking with uh, Karen Jones. Uh, she's author of a new book, Epiphany in the Wilderness, Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the 19th Century American West. Using the metaphor of the theater, she argues that the West was a crucial stage that framed the performance of the American character as an independent, resourceful, resilient, and rugged individual. The leading actor in all this was the all-conquering masculine hunter-hero. We'll be talking about uh, that uh, hunter-hero, that, uh, that myth, a mythological type. We'll also talk about gun culture, gender adaptations, and wildlife management and consumption, and many other topics. That's tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening today. I'm Rachel Giza. Making a Murderer is a hit true crime series about a man who spent 18 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Then when he got out, he was accused of murder. Next time on Q, our pop culture panel will discuss the compelling case that's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Wednesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.